Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into what is a very exciting episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro. I figured out how to turn my headphones on and I am ready to dive into it. On the other side of the mic, we are very, very excited to be joined by the team over at CMS Trading. Dan and Bobby, thank you so much for taking out time in the middle of the trading day. Although there's not that much going on. Yesterday was kind of the more exciting day. Mm. It's also not really a defined day, so it's kind of never really a good time. Yeah. Well, when's like when's the best time and the worst time to like not focus on the screens? You think there has to be some time? Maybe in between like Asia getting ready and America falling asleep. Yeah, there's like a little bit of a dead zone after U.S. like later, like call it six seven, and then before like guys in Asia get in. And then like middle of the day yeah. US time is usually kind of quiet. So I think most of our yeah. audience like is familiar with what you guys have done. And now with your incredible Twitter presence that you've masterfully built, <laughs> really, you know, going head to head with some of the greats like uh, Ramp Capital and others, you guys have carved out a nice little niche for yourself. I, I mean, the one tweet, I, I think I even sent it to my mom. <laughs> was the one about BitMEX. She didn't get it, but I just thought it was so funny. And I like to keep her up to date with what's going on in the crypto world. Uh, the juxtaposition of Bitcoin, or excuse me, BitMEX launching Litecoin perpetuals and the more pedantic wonky stuff going on at some of the other Asian exchanges is, it was, it was really funny. Yeah, I mean, that's like a wild story how like those two sort of markets have evolved. I mean, like FTX in particular, they're just really out there on the risk curve. and like they're taking collateral and all kinds of weird stuff. They're listing everything, it seems, and quickly. Like stuff's not even like liquid or existing for like two or three days and they're already out there with the full suite of products. So it's great. I mean, nothing's busted yet. I mean, that's the risk on it all. Well, Dan, I feel like this is exactly what traders need right now when Bitcoin's barely moving. You need more crazy products to trade because trading Bitcoin's really not that great of an opportunity or doesn't present as great of an opportunity as it maybe has in other cycles. Yeah, you could make the argument too though that because there's all of that stuff happening, that's why Bitcoin's sort of, the vol is really low and it's not sort of doing anything. So it's unclear if like people are gravitating towards it because Bitcoin's doing nothing or if Bitcoin's doing nothing because people are gravitating towards the other assets. You definitely get like cycles of this though. Yeah. I mean, like Bobby, we've like lived through a couple of these. Yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, before, like when you had the run up, like what, let's say like 2014 with like China and a bunch of positive news. I mean, you, you couldn't really take the other side of the trade, right? Like I think this idea of being able to like express a short view or a view that, that you think prices are going to go down. I think that's like a more or less a recent phenomenon over the past few years. Whereas like previously, was like you just couldn't do it. You couldn't find borrow. There weren't any venues that you could really do it in size. Uh, and so I think that, uh, to Dan's point, like that kind of plays to this idea that like it dampens volatility because there are all these products to express different uh, viewpoints. Yeah. So let's zoom out a little bit. No pun intended because we're recording on Zoom. It's funny. I was mentioning before we turned on the mics, I had been working on this story for quite some time because it involved like options and volatility, which isn't necessarily my strong suit. Although at the block, they make fun of me and call me the derivatives king. 
my knowledge is pretty limited. I've actually been on Amazon looking for books to better understand like volatility pricing and stuff. Doing like a you should course. you should read the whole book. I should. It's yeah. Like you really should. It's like it's like eighty. It's like eighty reading. bucks though. It's like eighty. I no, get, it's just I gotta get the block to pay for it. It just put PDF in the Google search and you'll find it. So let's talk about that's like part of the reason why I wanted to have you guys on and I chatted with Bobby a little bit about this two days ago. Volatility. We're in a we're basically still in this low volatility regime for Bitcoin and, and Ethereum to an extent. And I, I was just curious what that looks like from your guys' perspective. Like break it down for the audience. Um, my intuition is when vol's low, that presents less opportunities for traders like you to capitalize on volatile whipsawing swings in prices. So what do you do? Like what's, what's the move? Yeah, I mean, um, I think from like a macro perspective, yes, Bitcoin has been less volatile, but I mean, things have been flying around, obviously in the DeFi space, which has been interesting to watch and, and participate in. But uh, like there are other like pockets of volatility that you can find, or just let's just say overall activity that you can find where there's still interest, there's still investor dollars going into it. Now, yeah, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum has, um, fall has, has come off. And so um, you tend to look and, and hunt for other things that, that are interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of like a process that plays itself out over and over again. So you have these different trades that are easy. You, you know, if you harken back on 2017, it was the exchange arbitrage trade that dries up, you go into other things. So maybe in the past few weeks, you guys notice, all right, vol on Bitcoin's going down. So it's time to rejigger, reconfigure things. When did you guys start picking up on, on like this new regime? And how did you reposition yourselves? So for me, it felt like it was when comp did their whole dog and pony show. And like everyone got really into that really fast. And like the numbers were just like monstrous, like comp had some like jacked up valuation. Everybody was trying to figure out how it worked and how to like farm everything. And then off the back of that, it's basically just been altcoin mania since. And like you're seeing all these like really low liquid, almost dead projects springing back to life. And like you just got people picking this stuff up. There's a little bit of an analogy to the equity markets, right? Like there's all kinds of like low cap, like craziness going on too. And you see it with some of the stuff on like Robin track. But um, I think that's what primarily started it off though. You could argue the OMG listing on Coinbase and that like craziness was like maybe a little predating it. But I seem to think that you saw a lot more interest from the active desks around that point. And that's when you started seeing the perps get listed and you started seeing these assets start taking financing even from some of like the exchanges and partnering up with them. And then that's been the game up until now. And like people just like the levered Bitcoin and ETH traders are the same guys that are punting around altcoins. It's just like the pool of people moves between one or the other. And like, they'll mm -hmm. probably go back at some point, right? Like eventually they'll get tired of that. You just got to go with where that like sort of hot ball of active money is. Yeah, I think like Dan, Dan says this pretty often internally, but it's like skate to where the puck is going. And I think like we, we kind of really take that to heart in terms of like how we position the book. We play out major themes and major events and how do we want things to be positioned a week, month, you know, six months down the line. And so like, I guess, you know, uh, even though it's fairly recent, you know, you had the, the happening event for Bitcoin, which, you know, we, we obviously expressed a view there and position ourselves, but, you know, ahead of that we're thinking well okay where's where's the puck gonna go where's the flow gonna go what are people interested in because ultimately if people are putting on that trade or have put on that trade they're they're probably thinking the same thing so we're just trying to be like a step or two ahead of trying to figure out um exactly where you know either the volatility or the action uh, and overall activity will run to we were having a conversation once bobby about your days on the drw trading floor and correct me if i'm describing it wrong but I remember you saying, you know, everyone kind of had like a little button and you'd kind of, if there was some news event that would cross the wire or the terminal, you'd kind of speak into that button and that would get blasted across the trading floor, um, which really just speaks to the importance of news, especially in a, you know, spine tinglingly volatile market. But I feel like yeah. recently, and today provides a good example, uh, the OCC dropped this semi semi-bombshell that they'd give the authority to banks to custody crypto assets. And we saw like a little bit of movement in Bitcoin, but nothing like we would have seen if this happened maybe in 2017. And I think that just speaks potentially to 
the fact that news is becoming less important, maybe. Bitcoin mm -hmm. doesn't seem to respond to any news, no matter how positive or negative it might be. Same thing with the Twitter hack. You know, everyone in the media was calling this a Bitcoin scam, a crypto scam, but things kind of moved along as per usual. So I guess it just raises this question that I think is especially important for folks like you, is news or the news flow less impactful, less important? I think it depends on like the time horizon. So like, you're right. I mean, before, like, I mean, you know, and Dan will remember this, like news in 2013, 2014, it's like Dell accepts Bitcoin, you know, Newegg and any type of like, headline like that was was moving the market right obviously the market cap was much lower at that time but you have, you have like a few things i think in in today's world with news or events in crypto it's like there is definitely like a lag between how people consume crypto information and versus how it's reflected in pricing or in the market one i think that's because you know you're you're trying to vet the information because obviously there have been a number of times where, and, and even like other outlets have put out there and taken it away in terms of the, these headlines because they haven't verified it yet. And so I think, and, and also like how long does it take for that to play out? So, you know, the news today, the OCC grants authority for, you know, crypto custody. I mean, that's like one piece of the puzzle, but like how long will that actually take for that to actually be put in practice? And so I think if you factor that in, then you start thinking about, well, do I have better bang for my buck doing something else right now versus playing off of that news? And I'm sure people are, are probably um, looking at it that way. Hence why you don't see the price kind of move as much as you would. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Is it basically folks are trying to digest this? How will this actually impact the ecosystem in terms of new capital coming in, et cetera? Correct. Uh, so Correct. when something like that crosses the wire, you see that, you know, on your screen, Dan, what's the next move? So I think it depends a lot on how you're positioned going into it, right? Like if you're short, you're probably like, eh, do I really want to be short this thing going into like this sort of hitting the tape across everybody? Um, I mean, if you're long, you're probably just like, eh, this is good. I'll just like keep it. So I don't know, I think that's the knee jerk reaction. It's, it's hard. It's like Bobby said, like you, it sort of depends on the, what's the timeline of what you're thinking of price action doing. You got to remember like the, the short term price movements for, I mean, Bitcoin in particular, I mean, it's all crypto, but Bitcoin very much so is like very much driven by like large levered trading activity, right? Like you got all of these mega levered up exchanges where people are like trading huge size. That's what's really going to like move the price around on something like that in like a short term, unless there's like a real movement of, either, of cash, right? If somebody's selling like a lot of physical or somebody buying a lot of physical, which is probably not going to like suddenly act just because they saw some new headline. So you got to think like how that community is sort of going to react to it. And, and I think this is why the news hasn't been doing as much is because those people that are normally like winding up and taking those huge swings, they're just doing it on alts. They're not really playing. Like look at all the levered instruments on all the Asian exchanges like EOS, Litecoin, BCH, Bitcoin, Ripple, like all the big ones that are like normally the heavily levered up trading pairs they're all doing nothing. Like people aren't really playing that game. They're playing it on like all the small cap names and they're like winding those. Like here, you want to see something really fly? Just you see any headline in any one of those smaller names and they're just flying way more than they would before. Like you'd normally get like a little bit of a pop if like suddenly somebody was doing something, there's some partnership or some listing, but stuff's like doubling, tripling. Like that's where all the hot money is. What are some recent examples? Uh, what's the big one that's like been... Um, what, like a DeFi project? Yeah, I mean, like the DeFi stuff, obviously, like, like that's, it's hard to point to like a specific event, I guess, yeah. like the bigger thing. Well, actually, here, no, look at this. What's that swipe thing that Binance did to deal with? That's like a 4X from the announcement, right? Like that just yeah. went off and kept going. Like, I don't know, that seemed like a pretty big one. And yeah, I get the news matters and it's like relevant for the underlying, but you got to think at some point that's like overshooting a little bit. Yeah, even like, um, like some of the thematic stuff within DeFi, like, it's been playing out over the last few months, but just like all of these oracles that a lot of these DeFi projects are, are going to need or have partnered with, like we, we kind of joked in, internally, it's just like, this is like the season of partnerships because it felt like any announcement that came out regarding partnerships was really material to that, to the price of that, of that altcoin. And so um, yeah. I feel like we're all kind of partnershiped out now, but it's like, that's what people were like looking towards to, to gain alpha in the market. That was like, yeah. well, remember eight, 
EA had the uh, the Coinbase custody listing. And, like, we've had a bunch of these. Like, this isn't the first time Coinbase has added, like, a new asset to custody. And you get, like, a little bit of a bump on it. But that thing was, like, it almost, like, 2 x from, like, some baseline level beforehand, you know? And, like, it's like, all right, well, I leaked out a little bit so people got in front of it. But the moves are just way bigger than, like, we would historically see in, like, announcements like that. This also, like, Dan, doesn't this, like, this kind of reminds us of, like, like the ICO craze days, where it was like very retail driven, retail sentiment. I mean, to a degree, the market still is like that. But like, you know, forums, chat rooms, things like that. That's where like people are, are trying to like generate alpha in. And, and these oh, yeah. it's kind of like a retail mania driving this. Definitely. I, I agree 100%. Like, I'm, like, we're in weird places looking at people talking about stuff that like we haven't thought about in years. But it does. It's like that 2017 thing where like, Justin's son would be seen eating McDonald's and people would be like, there's a potential partnership and the thing would double. Like it was just random mm-hmm. stuff like that. People were latching on to any narrative they could possibly like get to. And it's like sort of happening. And these small cap names, you don't need a lot of money to like really move them around. Mm-hmm. And there's like a threshold where you have like the major desks, like the large balance sheet guys that at the end of the day, they need more return for their dollar then there is liquidity in the market, right? So you just generally wouldn't go to those places because you can't put on the size that you need to generate the amount of money you would for the return on your dollar. And so uh, we, we tend to be able to, you know, see opportunities in, in, in that area. I think it's an important juxtaposition to point out. It's not so much that news isn't important in crypto anymore or in cryptocurrency trading or that certain types of news events don't have an impact, but there's certainly more of an impact in this one pocket of the market. You mentioned the Binance swipe deal that was announced July 7th. I think we broke it a few days before that. But since they announced it, to your point, uh, Dan, the thing's up 100, more than 100%, the, the token that, that's part of swipe or swipes token. So it's interesting. And we're seeing, the similar, we're seeing similar things pan out in DeFi. Thinking about DeFi for a second, I think the the amount of value in the DeFi space is now over $3 billion. We're seeing a lot of, lot of interest in these different tokens. Are we, are we approaching? Are we getting closer to top? And, and how, do, how do you identify that? Like in this world of crypto where it's so hard to identify valuations or, or fundamentals and you don't know the degree to which liquidity or momentum is going to drive something higher. Um, how, how can you identify the top and are we anywhere near there? Yeah. Call it a uh, peak fi. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I like, I, I, I personally don't think that's a game you should ever play. I, maybe Bobby has like a stronger like opinion about like trying to like, I just think <laughs> going short these assets is just, I don't know. That's just as much gambling as punting on them. Yeah. I, I think like it's you, you, yeah, I agree with that. You, you just you get run over on those things pretty quickly, and for no apparent reason at all, right? You could you could long term be right, but in the short term, you get chopped up pretty quickly. But I think I think I think people are still people are still obviously super bullish on DeFi, what it brings. You know, yeah, you mentioned there's like three billion of, of value that's locked into it. Like MakerDAO uh, was this week just like voted on like upping the ceiling of, of a few assets. So I think it's going to like continue to grow, but in like. I, I still think everything's sort of like an experiment right now. Everybody's trying different things and seeing kind of what really works, what do people like. But also, like, if they think about the macro environment that we're in right now, where everybody, everybody's hunting for yield, right? Because, because uh, you know, you, you can't get, you know, 5, 10, 20% intra-month, uh, let alone uh, annualized from any other traditional venue right now. So take away that environment, like, what does DeFi kind of look like? So, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's all TBD. We, we obviously you know, experiment with some things internally um, just to get familiar with that stuff. But, uh, but as Dan mentioned, it's like, it's really hard to, to take the other side of that trade. Yeah. I feel like if you want to express that view that you think like DeFi is ahead of its skis, which it probably is in aggregate, you want to like, look to like, what's that cycle play out into next, right? Like where does all of that activity and all of that value accrue to like, what's the next sort of spot that's all going to move. I think that like making that bet's a lot better than trying to be like, this is it. This is too much. Like it's going down. I, it just, I, it seems like um, it might work out for you and it might be great, but it's just a bad risk reward. And cause like this could just keep getting crazier for a very long time. Like they, there's so many people that got stomped down in 2017. Cause they were like, these assets are worthless. And like, maybe they were right. And maybe they did go down 90% after, but 
doesn't mean you're going to be like solvent through it. There's also a degree to which it's something that Bobby and I have talked about. Um, a lot of the fervor around these, these DeFi protocols is to a degree out of touch with how well they work to an extent. I mean, you guys have to be relatively agnostic on the, you know, you're just trying to put a trade on. You're just trying to, you know, squeeze alpha out of the whipsawing prices of some of these tokens. But on the other side is the fact that a lot of them aren't great from a customer perspective. Some of these decentralized exchanges aren't the best places to trade on. And, you know, whether it's linking up with them and getting the right amount of liquidity, it's still not there yet. So maybe a lot of traders, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, or the question is, a lot of traders are trying to capitalize on this momentum play, but at the same time, maybe don't want to trade on these things. Yeah, and, and also like when you see like the price move, um, we wake up every morning and <laughs> sad to say that, that I check prices like immediately right as I wake up. Um, like you see things move, right? But you also have to keep in mind like the market cap and the available liquidity of a lot of these coins, the, like the underlying data of it. And and what you'll notice is like, yeah, maybe, maybe it trades a few hundred grand um, on on average. And so there, there's not much, as Dan mentioned, like there's not much capital that needs to push this price, you know, 10, 20, 30%. And so when you factor that in, that kind of tempers your expectations of kind of what's really going on there from the ground level, like development wise versus just sort of like a little bit of mania between a few pockets and, and uh, communities that, that really are bullish on the core. What are some of the frustrations that you guys have had in interacting with the DeFi ecosystem from a trading perspective? It just moves um, so fast. That's like the biggest thing right now, at least it's really hard to like stay on top of it. I'd argue nobody actually has a full grasp of what's going on. Yeah. Well, I remember like back in 2017, one of the big issues with centralized exchanges was they would constantly change their APIs. There wasn't really a sort of standard way to engage and onboard onto many of these exchanges. I imagine there's a number of similar problems with trying to trade on a non-custodial venue. Yeah, I, I'd probably say that it's probably even even bigger because of that. You, you are um, you basically chop away a piece of the market that can't trade on your exchange anymore because of that you know native wallet functionality and just that that knowledge and know-how versus people who are probably much more accustomed to dealing with a trusted third party. Uh, that's just the way that they, the way that we've all been wired. And so I think it's like, let alone trading on it, but you have to like change the, like the the narrative within people's like what they think about and how they should be trading. Um, that education process takes, takes a little bit of time. And as Dan mentioned, like there, there are no, like uh, prior to this kind of past few months of, of DeFi excitement, yes, the investors, the early investors, the, the large funds have obviously been investing in this space for a few years now, but actual like end users, customers, traders, people that are actually going to bang around the systems and really stress test it. I mean, I would say like outside of, probably like maker, you, you haven't really had anybody that's been really stress tested in the system. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how all that develops. Yeah. There's definitely some like lurking risks there that people aren't like pricing. Like how does this stuff actually work when there's like sort of a, a stress test or like certain parts of like the ecosystem aren't working. It's also, it's incredibly dangerous to me because like, it seems like it's all very daisy chain this thing you're borrowing from this to lend on this to like, you know, like it's, like I said, like it's really hard to keep up with exactly what's going on, but it seems that a lot of these pieces are like interwoven between each other at some level. That's like the sort of the, the benefit and the curse of like synthetic assets is this idea that there's like this representation of a real asset or virtual asset. And so you are, you create like rehypothecation within the system and, and uh, duplicity as well. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And one, one area of the market that might be more familiar or standard to traders is, is options, right? Because a lot of the marketplaces there and products there aren't necessarily reinventing the wheel in some respect. You know, there's yield opportunity there as well for folks to, you know, basically sell vol to, to capture yield opportunities and, and options. It's funny, you know, some people describe this as, as picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, right? Do you guys view it that way? Um, a little bit. Uh, I mean, it, like there's a lot of, or at least we've heard that there's a lot of like sort of structured product 
selling coming out of Asia that's been like smashing the balls. Um, and that's like sort of been people looking to get yield on their crypto. Yeah, I mean, it's something that works until it doesn't. And then you get sort of, but like a lot of this is like covered activity. So if it's guys who just like own a bunch of Bitcoin that are like selling covered calls, like that's sort of a different thing than if like people are just systematically trying to like sell ball constantly. Then those two like have a very different risk profile if there is like a risk event um, sort of in the things. I mean, you could just get some exacerbated moves to the upside if all these guys have been selling calls for yield and then suddenly there's a move up and they all have like remorse about it. So they like cover you could literally get like a knock-on effect that way. So I think it'll, it, it depends who in particular, I guess the like actor is and like how this could like end poorly from them. But like, I mean, Bitcoin is, I think it's realizing 90 on the year, the implieds are trading at like 35 or something like that in the front. Like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's a great sort of risk reward, but I mean, people are doing it. What do you think is gonna take for Bitcoin to break out from a vol's perspective? What shoe needs to drop? I, I really think it's got to be people like moving away from alt and going back into like the lever trading, or there's just going to be some capitulation from somebody who has supply, which is probably going to be on the negative side. Mm-hmm. Do you sense that part of this stagnation is the result of the lack of new blood coming in? Like it's basically the same people sloshing money around. It's kind of a lack of new blood, maybe on both the retail and institutional side. Definitely feels like it, right? Yeah, like right. aggregate market cap yeah. hasn't changed. Yeah, so like like new inflows and uh, you know, I think I think um, uh, one of the way that one of the ways that people have been able to do it, at least from like the data that, that we've seen is like, yes, people are, you know, seemingly have been piling into GBTC, you know, put away the in kind stuff. You know, we wish we could actually see the real raw numbers of new flows coming in versus just in kind. But uh, like aside from that, Dan and I have conversations every other week with some major players not in the crypto space that have been looking at this but they like it's so clear from the first conversation how far away they are from what the actual market looks like versus what they think the market is um in terms of just where they get information from system structure just their overall knowledge of the space like that gap still continues to exist but there's no like there's no education gap on what bitcoin is now it's just like now the education gap is like how do you integrate Bitcoin into maybe a trading strategy or develop a trading group for it? Like that's where they're all kind of at now. So like we, we have a good sense that like, you know, there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. They all want to deploy it into space, big guys, but at the same time, now they're at the point where how do you integrate this thing into the overall company now that they've gotten buy-in to actually move forward on it. And there's kind of two different classes of, you know, what do we call them? We call them institutions, right? But what, what does that really mean? Some are traders, some are asset managers and both of those groups are all these different groups are looking for different things. Right. And so if I'm a trader, I'm probably looking for volatility, which Bitcoin at the moment doesn't have. So I'm going to stick to Nikola and Hertz or whatever have you. If I'm an investor, I'm thinking, all right, well, we're kind of in this period of uncertainty. Inflation might pick up. It may not. Why do I want to get into Bitcoin when I can just hedge with tips or or gold or or something else? And I think we had a little bit of a a sort of moment in the sun or limelight with the Paul Tudor Jones moment. But it seems like from the hedge fund macro investor perspective, this idea of Bitcoin being an inflationary hedge has kind of subsided, at least for the time now, the time being. Yeah. And also like... um new capital still flowing into funds that are raising like on the VC side from the conversations that we're having. And so people are expressing their viewpoint that way, right? They're saying, Hey, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put money into Bitcoin. I can put money into, you know, these other altcoins or whatever it may be. I'm going to give my money to someone who's smarter than me and have them deploy it. Well, what these funds tend to do is they deploy capital to kind of newer projects, newer initiatives that are out there. And so those, those from at least my perspective from the deals that we've seen is like they, they've been a little bit removed from Bitcoin, if not completely removed into different sectors within crypto. And so that's definitely playing a part into that this new capital is not funneling its way towards the price of Bitcoin, but it's actually into the valuations of a lot of these, these other projects. We've talked about this a lot, Bobby, just the amount of money on the VC side and the lack of viable companies and projects to invest in probably to an extent is driving up some valuations. A lot of people say valuations on the VC side are fair, but 
there's this question of, are there too many service providers, too many custodians, too many firms trying to tackle the same problem for so few investors and creators actually involved in this market? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, but but the thing that's still like fueling that buyer is is the fact that investors are still hunting for that killer application or you know the dominant market share product, whereas all these all the products and all the companies themselves are trying to figure out well what's the next thing that I need to be working on, and so when you continue to have like capital being raised on like the front end of these companies, you know it, it's really hard to see them fade away or get acquired or things like that because there's still people chasing for that, you know, uh, you know, unicorn moment or whatever it may be. Yeah. Larry Cermak had a good tweet the other day about this. If Robinhood's valuation is only at like 8 billion and they're across stocks, crypto and all and options, right. Which has been the big money maker for them. I mean, where's the further upside on even a company like Coinbase, which is kind of as big as you can get. Maybe they're both cheap, right? Like maybe it doesn't have to be a comparison thing. Maybe Robinhood's <laughs> cheap at eight and like Coinbase is cheap at eight. Like it's, it's possible, right? Like, I mean, there's clearly enough money moving in on like the VC side that we see like risk appetite there for it. Well, I, I'd be curious what you think they might both be cheap and then we can flip it. I, I would buy both of those valuations, I guess, is like the argument. Sure, sure. And I like wouldn't be super concerned about them because if they went public, I feel like I'd get out of them much higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also like in the crypto space, like especially on the VC or like even the token deal side of things, there is like when we look at some of these valuations, you know, you benchmark it against other stuff and uh, you definitely have to build in some sort of like froth multiplier or like crypto multiplier where there is an unknown. There is an unknown multiplier that will get applied to these to these valuations simply because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But obviously you're looking at the space because you're very optimistic about what it may look like five, 10 years down the line. And so you have to kind of add in a little bit of that juice just to, well, all the companies have. And so, so they, they've realized that it's for the longevity and, and for the future of the asset class. Speaking of, speaking of valuations, it makes me think of the prime play that everybody's doing. Everybody wants to be a prime broker. <laughs> is that, is that just a valuation prime. play? <laughs> is that just, yeah, now you're, after you updated your Twitter handle, your uh, valuation 10 X, uh, but is that, is, that, is that all that this is, is, all right, now, now folks who might be investing in my Series D and F are going are gonna to look at my business a little bit differently. I, well, I think a lot of these added people- a, added a prime play? Well, because you're like, oh, now I'm going to be prime. Like, I'm sure the multiple for a prime is, is higher than that of a, you know, retail brokerage firm, for instance, or, you know, an OTC desk or a custody firm, especially- yeah, I mean, I think it's a little like window dressing. It's like you're if you're doing that business sort of anyway, and you can like just change how you package it. Like, I think it's a better sell. I think it's I think like mostly that's just like a marketing and branding exercise because like those businesses I don't think have materially changed yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's like it's like HBO Go, HBO Max, and then you just have like the regular <laughs> HBO Live TV. It's just like I I don't know the difference between a lot of them. Um, and so um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a marketing play. So, so what does the market structure look like? Um, this is a question I've been interested in when basically every market participant is trying to become the same thing. I mean, if in 2017, right, when you were at Circle, Dan, and, and, and let's say Circle was trying to be a PB and all of your counterparties are trying to be a PB, like, does that make things weirder? Um, yeah. Stepping on each other's toes, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think like the crypto is interesting in this regard that like most of the desks and like most of the players still like pretty much get along with each other. Um, I don't like I, it's odd. Like I don't think you get that in most other asset classes. Even like the guys on like the risk side. Like we talk to a lot of people that like in the traditional world we would sort of be enemies, right? Like we wouldn't be sharing color. Like we wouldn't be sharing flow. Um, so like I, I still think it's like a you you have the thesis in crypto that this whole thing's got to get a little bit bigger or like we're all wasting our time. And because of that, you're all sort of like willing to work together a little bit more. But you're right. This is going to get more violent with each other as it does grow, right? Like as it starts to become like a real issue and people have to start peeling away market share from other people. Yeah, I think it'll get worse. But like the money's still pretty much flowing in well. And like everyone's still sort of on this like hope train that like everything is going to like be so much bigger in five, ten years time that you don't have that cutthroatness yet. But it'll happen. There's, there's no world that doesn't happen. 
either the money stops flowing yeah. or like the dream stops. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like, uh, for me, it's just like, it's like looking at how efficient the market gets over time. It's like, if you, if you just look at spreads over time, right, it was like, you know, we're probably talking whole percentage points, then it moved to like basis points. And, and, you know, now obviously we're talking like pennies, um, you know, may, maybe there's a world where it gets to pips or something smaller in terms of like, like what FX does right now. And so at that time, I think that's when you really see like people fighting for market share because, um, because it's just that much more crowded, the space. Who do you think has the best chance at, cracking the prime egg we've got we've got galaxy we've got b2c2 we've got genesis we've got maybe coinbase is is trying to needle its way in there through Tagomi. who's got most of the the pieces or is supposed to get most of the pieces um Dan, i'll let bobby independently answer yeah i mean i <laughs> i would i would say genesis i like i would i would say they're probably the, the furthest behind tech wise but I think they have all the relationships. The lending desk is very good. It's very large. And that Grayscale product suite is like super useful and like very big. And people like, the, I think that is the front runner right now. If I had to pick one, I think they'll, if they can nail the tech side of things a little bit better, they can really sort of run away with it. Yeah, obviously like I, I there's a little bit of bias here just cause you know, I used to work there. I know those guys very, very well personally. So so yeah, Genesis definitely. Second, I'd probably say Coinbase because there's obviously a lot of resources, a lot of help that they can access, along with obviously just 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 the core company that that's been operating. I think there is this idea of like brand recognition in the space. It's like really hard, I think, for just like completely new entrants coming into the space trying to trying to impact market share. I think trust and like brand recognition is a very big piece. Of building a good business in space, and then both those companies, you know, Genesis and Coinbase, they've done that, and and so you know, I think they, their way of approaching the business, and and I'll speak more to Genesis is like, you know, kind of staying focused about what the actual you know game plan is versus trying to go and tackle something in DeFi or going and trying to tackle something you know in staking because that's kind of where where you know the current flows are moving towards. They've been very like vanguardish in, in the way that they look at um, opportunities. And game plan. Yeah, that's a good point. Which company, like, when you harken back to when you first start getting involved in this ecosystem, has kind of surprised you in terms of its growth? And which one maybe has kind of not made as much waves as you would have anticipated? I'm thinking, I'm thinking like BlockFi maybe on the retail side, but they're doing a lot of they're doing a lot on the institutional side as well. They've kind of sure. come out, yeah. I mean, mine is definitely Kraken. Like, and I say this because I was an employee there and I decided to leave. Like, Kraken, Kraken did far better and took way more market share than I sort of thought when I was, like, leaving there. So, I would say that was a big surprise to me. And I'm really happy for them. Like, I really, like, I, obviously super excited that they, like, stuck it out and they're, like, a big part of the industry now. But, um, like, 2014, like, when I was, like, leaving, I was like, nah, I don't know if this is going to work. But uh, they turned it around. Like, I mean, that was the truth. I mean, like, I was very honest. I was like, both to Jesse about it. Like, he knew. I'll take the other side because Kraken was definitely on my mind too because uh, it's kind of been like the little engine that could. Um, <laughs> but uh, let, let's say on the other side, disappointed. Um, well, I had high hopes for because I thought that it'd be really impactful to the industry, but maybe we just weren't there yet. And I, I don't think it had anything... Uh, you know, any one particular reason why I think it's just numerous things, whether it was like regulatory or just like just chartering the unknown, you just don't know what's going to happen. Right. So I'd probably say Ledger X, you yeah. know, when, when they got that DCO license, I mean, in my mind, at least, maybe I was overthinking it, but like this idea of like that you got a DCO license, like the second one ever since the financial crisis, like they don't just, they don't just give that, give those licenses out. I thought that was going to be like really huge for the industry, but uh, again, like when you're traveling in uncharted waters, you, you don't know what you're going to encounter. So uh, I'm sure they, they tried their best to figure out what was, you know, the best game plan for the company. And then meanwhile, you had other incumbents in the market develop quicker, faster, um, build a better brand and, uh, and ultimately overtake them or kind of leave them behind. And so uh, that, that'd be the one that I'd say. That example makes me yeah. think of some of these so-called, not so-called, I mean, they catered institutions, but when 
Erisex back, gay crashed crypto in 2018, I guess it was. Everyone was getting excited about that. And they thought that this would be the, the new on-ramp for large institutions. And people at Erisex think that I like to pick on them. They, they think I like to pick on their volumes. I don't. I check the volumes. There's zero. It's not my fault. And I'm sorry that there's zero. If there were a million a day, I'd be equally as happy. But I think, I don't know why. Like Seed had to shut down its exchange. Eris has no volumes on the future side, basically none. I, I kind of have my own theories about why this is the sort of situation that they found themselves in. But it, it speaks to this broader point of what our expectations are. They're not always going to fit into what ultimately happens. And yeah. maybe that's, yeah, that's going to be the case with DeFi. You know, in, in two years from now, we're all going to be looking back at it and thinking, all right, we were a little too soon. But, <laughs> I mean, at least they're clocking in some, some volumes at this point, whereas, uh, I mean, back in Erisex and, and all those firms don't really have much to show for it. I, I mean, I think, I think it's like uh, you can even go broader than that. It's like this. I don't know what the exact word is, but you had like this during that 2017, 2018 boom, you had this like wave of, let's just call it interest from traditional capital markets, whether it's let alone ideas, um, which there were plenty, but like people as well. Right. So you had a number of people who said, well, you know, I think I can apply this to this market because, you know, this is what I've been doing for the last 25 years at this bank or, you know, whatever, maybe. And so, so it, it was just like all of that, once it actually hit the tape, they realized that, man, this, this stuff actually doesn't maybe work as well as you thought it would. And a part of it was definitely where the crypto market was in general versus where people saw prices, right? In terms of this idea that crypto become much more sophisticated and there are a lot more tools and a lot more things. But like, like I'll give you an example. It's like, you know, people come to this market and they think like, you know, wallet management is easy. It's like, it's probably one of the hardest things you could ever do. Right. It's like, hey, can you uh, can you pull me, you know, back office, say, can you pull me that uh, your Monero wallet report so I can make sure and reconcile all the data? It's like, you can't do that in this. So like you get into the space, you figure out all these little nuances, which which are a lot in crypto that forces you to realize that that certain stuff just doesn't work as you thought it would. Not to put you guys on the spot, but I think to a degree, Circle and DRW fit in this uh, category to an extent of firms that at one point were, were the kingpins and now are not so much kingpins anymore. Like they dominated flows. People aren't talking about those firms anymore. How did the OTC landscape change so much? I guess is a, is a more yeah. broad way to put it so that I don't get you in trouble maybe with your former employees. I mean, I could talk about DRW a little bit. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I have nothing bad to say about DRW, first off. Um, my experience there was great. I think a big part of it, though, is that, you know, you're not planning for 30 days, 60 days out of the year, right? You're planning for, well, how's this business going to look like in five years? How does it help diversify the broader DRW businesses? And so when you take that lens towards anything that you're doing in a market that changes constantly every second of the day, you know, you, you're playing this like, um, you're playing this game of chess where all the pieces continue to move. And so I would say that, look, obviously competition came in um, and that drove a lot of interest into the market, um, which I, I think DRW capitalized on that pretty well. Uh, and, but then the second part is it, it's like, well, okay, if the landscape is changing, who are we going to be in this new world or, or this new age of crypto? And so I think from my perspective, at least, I think, you know, everybody, not just DRW, but everybody's trying to figure out, well, what's the next thing? How can we position ourselves better? Because, you know, I, I, think, I think they all did really great during those years and they're continuing to do good. It's just they're trying to figure things out. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's not so much a question of, or it's not so much a reality of going from being kind of a top dog and then not because you're not good at it or you're not delivering on X. It's, it might be more methodical, right? Like in 2017, it makes more sense for us to be maybe the center of liquidity, whereas in 2020, it might make more sense for us to be less customer facing, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Because, because you, maybe the market has implemented, and Frank, we talked about it, like maybe the market has implemented certain infrastructure that pushed those types of players to play a different role in the market. And so you just don't see them 
within that realm, like, like let's just say OTC trading, whereas you may be OTC trading with your prime broker, let's just say, well, they may, you know, more often than not are probably facing off with DRW on the back end. So like the rules have just kind of shifted a little bit. So, um, but, but again, I think that goes to whether it circles uh, pivot to, to different businesses, DRW's pivot, like all that is just them trying to be much more agile and they're just not the same person that you thought or, or that they were before, which is okay. Circle was a little different because Circle wasn't a trading shop with an OTC desk. It was like a tech company that had like an OTC desk like stapled to it that sort of happened just not, not randomly. There's a reason that we were like operating the business, but it grew out of size and scope very fast, very quickly um, for reasons that were unplanned, which was great. Like it, like it was a win for everybody involved in it. The big issue was that um, Circle burns and burned a lot of money, right? Like it was it's an expensive business to run and that balance sheet is super useful. So what the OTC business, like we made ungodly money in 2017 and then like the first half of 18 and everything was fine. The problem was like the margins got compressed and it was still a very good business, right? It was still throwing off like a eight figure year, um, even when like I was on my way out. But that relative to the balance sheet that you needed to support that business wasn't a good use of capital compared to what it costs sort of to like raise VC money and sell equity otherwise. So it was, it was a little weird in that sense. Cause like circles priority was never like, Oh, we need to make X percent on the money. It was like, we need to build this as big as possible. And we need to be hitting like multiples on this stuff for it to make sense. So I think that was like ultimately like where the, the shift like happened and like why it ended up sort of like moving out. But I mean like the margin compression on the OTC side and the move towards electronic was like very real. And like, we had to figure out like, is this a business we want to park 50, $75 million in a year to make 15, 20%? Like, is that make sense? And if you're like a tech company and you're sort of pitching that to investors, it's very hard to sit there and say like, oh, like this is like what we're going to do with it. So I, I think that was kind of the way that all played out. I mean, it was also, it, you went from this just mania in 17, 18 to like probably a more realistic sort of market in it all like those multiples that you were hitting on like your balance sheet usage had to come in. Like there was no way you were going to be making that indefinitely. What parallels can be drawn between today's environment and, and back in like the heady days of 2017, 2018? It's, yeah. there's not like new money coming in, right? Like if you look at, it's just like a lot of the same sloshing around, like the aggregate market cap of like crypto as an industry, like hasn't really moved a lot. Like, so it doesn't seem like there's a ton of inflow. There's some, but it's not of the level you were seeing in 17. Like there was just so much money getting pushed through the system every day. Yeah. Yeah. You, you wouldn't even be able to get like an allocation because like the coins wouldn't like hit like the chain because it was just way too crowded for whatever sale was happening. Um, but I, I'd say uh, what like lessons learned, I guess, is just stick with the strategy that you have. Try not to waver right, too and, much. There's going to be, I was going to say, just make as, make as much damn money as you possibly can as fast as you can <laughs> while the opportunity is there. Cause like, it's not going to last. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good point. It's like, look, uh, if you believe that markets are always efficient uh, and you found, let's say you found a trade or you have an idea or whatever, maybe that is not going to last. These are a lot of smart people in the space looking for the same exact damn thing. And so uh, you better believe that um, you're already thinking about the next trade and figuring out how you can capitalize with what you've already done. So what are you excited about looking towards the second half of 2020? What trends are you anticipating? To play out so i think i think the stuff you're seeing happening in the metals right now and i think you see some of this like idea that like inflation might creep into the market like i don't i don't have any ability to predict that stuff whatsoever like i don't trade those asset classes if i did i wouldn't be trading crypto but i do think you're seeing some real interest moving into that and i like to think that crypto will be able to snag some of that narrative and like hopefully get itself like sort of unstuck because I don't know, I mean, we're going on three years of this thing sort of treading water. Like, I'd like to see some like real activity on it. So that's like my hope um, for where this stuff goes in like the next two or three months or quarter. And you guys are basically like done kind of building out CMS at this point. I'd be curious to know, given that sort of view you have for the future, what that means for the firm itself. But I think you guys are basically like done hiring. You're kind of in a good, good spot. Dan can give his input as well, but like, I think like in the beginning, it was like, okay, can, can we make money? Uh, can some of our strategies that we think we can generate alpha generate alpha? And I think that we've, we've proven some of that out. And then, then it was like, well, okay, let's start building the foundational pieces for this company now versus this idea. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, we, we brought on some people. We're, we're eight people strong now, which is great. I, I, don't, I don't think we have any like hiring needs at the moment. I think we are uh, just focused on kind of getting everybody settled into their roles, figuring out responsibilities and, and really gelling with the team. And then the market will end up dictating how we end up like, you know, developing, but you know, we're always looking for the next thing in terms of like how we can continue to grow both professionally and personally. Yeah, I think I very much agree with like how Bobby phrased it. Um, I think we just think like if look if we can we can add an incremental head and it makes X and we're sort of like aligned sort of in all thought process and this isn't going to be something that we're going to have to unwind in like a couple of years. I think we're like for that. Like that's sort of like how we've done it so far. Like we've added, we've seen how things go. If like the PL adjusts accordingly, then we like think about adding a little bit more. So I, I think we'll keep doing that for the near term. I don't know. There's like capacity constraints in crypto too, right? It's like how much can like an active desk really deploy at any given time? And like how much edge can you really suck out of the market? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, you know, you kind of have to, a lot of the crypto firms that run into trouble is they don't reconcile with that and they just keep growing, keep growing and ignore well, some of the constraints I, that are there. I think part of it though is like the influence of investors and hitting, you know, KPIs or whatever it may be, right? Like those types of metrics tend to drive and dictate strategy, but you have like this whole other influence, which is something that you cannot control ultimately, which is the overall market and what it's going to dictate for you and your destiny. And so I think, I think not having that, you know, sort of on our side, we're able to kind of think about things maybe with a clear head. Yeah, It's hard too, right? Like, I mean, the market cap, of the asset class goes down 80%. You just don't need as many heads. Like, I mean, like everybody went through this yeah. in 18 in some level, like, cause you were staffing up as quick as you could because you're like, this is crazy. I can't get a hand of it. Like, where is this going to end? And you don't know where it's going to end. Like it just, it moves so damn much in aggregate each direction that it's like, you're either understaffed constantly or you're overstaffed. You're never like perfect or maybe you are for like a couple months, but it's just, it's hard to find that sweet spot. And it causes like, unfortunately a lot of pain. I hope that you guys don't experience any pain in the near term. And excited to continue to keep up with what you guys are doing and sharing in the laughs on Twitter. Oh, um, yeah. We're going to definitely keep Dan. the Twitter going. Keep it going. <laughs> if anything, you want to continue to expand that. I hope there's no constraints on the social media side. Thanks for coming on the show. This is great. Thanks so much, Frank. I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.